the way I practice is my job is to find out where they are. If they're sunk into themselves, then I approach them at a deeper level and meet them there. Or for instance, if their pulse is very fast, then I do a fast technique because it matches their energy. But my intention is not about what should happen. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. We look to medicine to be solidly reproducible, like rolling cars off an assembly line. Patients want that kind of reassurance, and we do research for good reasons to prove or disprove a method or medicine is helpful. But at the end of the day, we are living creatures, not machines. And the long list of pharmaceutical side effects is proof positive that not all medicines affect everyone in the same way. The same knee replacement that allows one person to run for another, they'll be dependent on a cane for the rest of their life. Medicine has a foot in science. And when I say science, I mean the method of observing, forming a hypothesis, and then testing. It's not about proving your point for the gratification of ego or show your hypothesis reflects your superior thinking or to use it as a narrative so you can sell something. The method of science is to keep us honest with ourselves. It gives us a way to stay humble in the presence of the mystery of life. Medicine, most assuredly, should have one foot firmly in science. But medicine is also art. It's a way of taking our own experience and expression and using that to engage the ever-changing present moment. It's a way to connect with another and ourselves that hopefully allows the practitioner to be of service and for the patient to access something in themselves that allows them to grow more vital. Sometimes growing more vital means adopting different lifestyle habits. Sometimes it means letting go of a belief that no longer serves. It might even mean recognizing that we will sicken and die if we're granted the good fortune of living long enough. What is more healing? The medication that keeps your feelings safely within the bounds of professional diagnostic parameters or an experience that makes you question everything and leave you wildly open to possibilities that allow you to feel more acutely the discomforts of life, but with a deeper sense of gratitude and wonder. What if your present difficulty is an invitation to wake up and discover that you lived someone else's life, and for whatever moments you've got left, they can be more fully yours. I really thought that I'd know more at this point. I thought I'd be able to diagnose a patient by just having them walk into the room. I thought I'd have more capacity to pay attention to subtleties, a person's complexion, where they allow their breath to go, what their posture says about who they think themselves to be or not. I thought I'd be sensitive enough to feel the story of a tissue, that I'd have read enough medicine, that I'd know what to do at the end of the patient interview and assessment. But often enough, all I know is, start here. In a profession that focuses on the promise of easing suffering, 
It's easy to be hypnotized into imagining a proper end result for our patients, but that imagined solution might not be what they need. It might even be impossible to see the end from the beginning. It might be. All we ever have is start here. The implicit agreement with medicine is that we're going to help our patients because we're going to, air quotes here, do something. But much like a fine woodworker will sit with a piece of wood for a while, study its grain, get a sense of its character, decide where and how to cut, not so much to bend the wood to his will, but to be able to bring out the uniqueness of the wood itself. So too, with medicine, we are looking to assist our patients in allowing parts of themselves to emerge. Our job is not to impress our ideas of well-being onto the people in our care, but rather to help them find the path that's right for them. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Ponsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, 
Trust Made with Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office, and I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. In this conversation with Zoe Brenner, we explore the world of subtle touch and sensing. How our patients hire us, not just for our skill and knowledge, but also for our restraint and capacity to recognize that more does not mean better. Being able to digest an integrated treatment is essential. And overtreatment can be a problem because it overwhelms an already overloaded system. Not surprisingly, I thoroughly enjoy a conversation with folks who lead with their curiosity and are ever wondering what's up around the bend ahead. Zoe has engaged the practice of acupuncture for the far side of 40 years now, and it's a delight to have a conversation with a seasoned practitioner who is as enthusiastic for learning as a fresh graduate. Let's get into this. Zoe Brenner, welcome to Geological. Thanks. Nice to be here. Really delighted to have you here. You've shown up regularly in a number of geological live events. You know, and after a while you start noticing people they show up a little bit more. It's like, oh, there's that Zoe Brenner again. Yeah, <laughs> there's Zoe Brenner. Man, she shows up a lot for this. And then we somehow got to talking before one of them. I can't remember what it was. But the thing that I remember is that you have been at acupuncture for a really long time. And like long enough that it brings up the question, like, what's a nice girl like you doing with acupuncture given, now what year did you find this and how on God's green earth did you wind your way into it? Well, it was around 1975 that I started. And I had a treatment and I was so impressed that I felt so different that I went to a introductory lecture and they were interviewing people to go off to England to study. And we get everyone. And I said, no, you didn't get me. And the guy said to me, I didn't know you were interested. First interview I ever did that I wasn't nervous for because I did it on the spot. You didn't know you were being interviewed. (laughs) So I went off to England a few months later, and that was the beginning. Wow. That's extraordinary. So quick. 
1975, how do you even find an acupuncturist? And why would you even go to one? How old were you, if I may ask, when that happened? I was 25. Oh, you were 25? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I was having difficult situation with work and personal, and I had menstrual cramps, and I went for acupuncture, and I came out, and I felt like singing, and I never sing. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like singing, and I never sing. Okay, that would get my attention. Yeah, it did. Yeah. I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next in my life, and that popped up. And who knew at that point, when I made that decision, that 46 years later, I'd still be doing this. I would never have expected that of myself. But I found so many nooks and crannies and challenges and those kinds of things, and things that just interest me and excite me that I have never stopped. Yeah. Well, there's a lifetime of inquiry that goes into the work that we do. No doubt about that. Mm -hmm. If you're not up for lifelong learning, don't do this. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. So nooks and crannies. Tell us about some of those nooks and crannies and places where you've been that, that were surprising to you. Well, in a way, I probably have a different start than a lot of people because I started with Five Element. I started studying with Worsley, who got me interested because what was around at the time was pretty boring, was lists of symptoms. Did we even have acupuncture schools in the United States at that point, 1975? Yeah, it, the school started in 75 or 76. I think NISA had started before that, or right around the same time. Mm -hmm. And the school in Columbia started right around then. Actually, the school hadn't started. The, they had started a clinic in order to get a school because I had to go to England to study. And I think for several years, they had, you had to go to England to study. So he got me interested. Mm -hmm. And then I stayed around for a couple of years with that. Then I got involved with uh, Elizabeth. So I didn't start with TCM. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was different. And then I got involved with Elizabeth Rocha and Father Lar. And through the school, I met them through the school. They became very close friends. And I studied with them for many years. So I was studying Chinese classics. With some real heavy hitters of Chinese classics. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I mean, kind of nooks and crannies. Actually, I asked Per Lara once why he started studying Chinese, because he was in Vietnam during the Vietnam War, actually, and uh, came back and did a doctorate in, in Chinese at um, the Sorbonne. But I asked him why he started because he was a Catholic priest and sort of an odd thing. He said, because we have a saying in French that if you want, if you're odd, you're Chinese. In other words, he knew he was an outlier. <laughs> so he started to, and that was sort of, you know, a little bit of my approach was because I started in, in anthropology and was interested in other cultures. So it gave me a view of a different worldview than our normal worldview. And, and like you said, heavy hitters. So it wasn't just translations. They were like digging into what do these really mean? Yes. And how you swivel around in meanings of characters. 
So that was my beginning. That was probably 40 years ago that I started with that. So that's how I learned Chinese medicine. <laughs> yeah, so that's how you learn Chinese medicine. I want to stick a pin in that because I want to come back to it. I really appreciate hearing about Father Lar. And well, I'm weird, I'm kind of odd. So what do you do with that? You double down on it. That's what you do with it. I think there's really something to that. Yeah. I think about being, last night I was hanging out with a friend. Oh my God. We were going over stems and branches. He's been studying this much longer than I have. And we've had some conversations around it for the past year or so. And I almost understand what he's talking about. And all I can get is, yeah, that's really cool, but I don't really know what you're talking about. But we keep coming back to it. Last night we're hanging out and I'm starting to get it after listening to Deborah Wolf a little bit. It's like I actually had a way of holding up my end of the conversation. Mm. I get to the end of that conversation. We had a great time. Get to the end, hang up, and I'm thinking, we are so geeky. We're just <laughs> geeks. And I remember being in high school, being kind of a geeky kid, and it was the last damn thing that you wanted to be. So I really appreciate that idea, and I think it's right. Like, what's the thing that you're kind of weird about? Well, good. Go do more of that. Because <laughs> it might take you somewhere interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So anthropology, what a great foundation to have when you're... I was going to say doing medicine, but like working with other people. Because mm -hmm. even though we all come from the same, or you might, we might come from the same culture, even the same city, and we think we know each other, we live in such different worlds. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And there's something about anthropology that trains you to observe what you're doing. You're observing yourself. Yeah, observe how you are interpreting what's going on. Oh. And it's funny because back then I didn't know what I was going to do with anthropology, and I actually didn't go to graduate school, much to my father's chagrin. It was a time when <laughs> when schools were being tear-gassed and <laughs> mm -hmm. all sorts of things. And I didn't know what I would do with anthropology except get a position in a university if you could. Mm -hmm. So I started wandering around doing other things like training in bodywork psychotherapy and massage and so on. Then I encountered acupuncture, but I lost my train of thought. Oh, but then all of a sudden I realized that there are a lot of acupuncturists that have become anthropologists like Volker Scheid and yes. and then then you have the anthropologists like uh, Elizabeth Shue and all these people who it became the subject of the anthropology and medical historians are are somewhat anthropologists. So suddenly I'm back in the same new year. Isn't that funny? Yeah. How we can have something and it calls to us, maybe it goes dormant or it it just rides along, just waiting yeah, to uh, have a chance to, to flourish. The thing that you mentioned, though, I want to come back to this for just a second, mm -hmm. that as an anthropologist, there's a way that you're trained where you're attending to other cultures, but you're also attending to your own attending. Yes. That seems really helpful Yes, for any clinician, period, regardless of what kind of medicine you practice. 
No, I think it's true. You're observing how you're observing. Mm-hmm. And um, it does make a difference. And also, if you sink into the subject and you're just doing it, you lose perspective on what the nature of what you're doing is. And I think a lot of people do that with acupuncture. You just think it's this thing that you do and you just take it on wholeheartedly. But there's another part of me that's always going, what is this really about? Why would I think that way? An observation of it. And I think that's helpful. Yeah, I'm thinking about my own experience in clinic over the years. Especially early on, I would do everything I could to try to make a diagnosis line up with how I was thinking so I could feel okay about my thinking and feel confident about my diagnosis. Really, what I was doing was leaning on my confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. And sometime later, realized, you know, it might be more helpful if instead of thinking this is what I think it is, can I make a good argument for it not being the case? And what else would I see? But it took some time in the boat and a sense of some kind of confidence before I could challenge my own thinking as I was working with people. Mm -hmm. I think I did not serve my early patients all that well because too often I was trying to make it right instead of trying to see what was actually there. That's what I think is crucial. Even after all these years, I still think that part is really crucial about practicing, is not imposing your ideas on the person that you're confronted with, that you be as clear that you're just observing them and hearing, feeling, smelling, whatever, getting the information that they are giving you without you putting any pressure on them without you imposing yourself. Mm -hmm. That is one of the most crucial things about practice. I'm going to skip way ahead because what I discovered 20 years ago, or 22, 23 years ago, was Japanese meridian therapy, which sort of brought me back to the five phase again. Mm -hmm. But specifically, Toyohari practice, which has a lot of skill training in practice needling and palpating and so on. And that we spend a lot of time making sure we're not imposing ourselves. If you're feeling for a point and you're too heavy in your palpation, it makes the person's pulse sink. When you lighten up and you just feel where there's an opening to needle, it the pulse comes alive. And even when I'm teaching, I find that when students go to do a diagnosis on patients and they have too much in their mind about what they're going to see, that it confuses the picture. I have to take the person's pulse before anyone touches them so that I don't feel all this conflicting information coming because they've impressed their idea of who that patient is on them rather than allowing it to emerge. That is delicate, delicate work. 
Well, this has been for the last 20 or so years, like I said, this has really taken over my life. And I'm so excited to practice this way because I'm always learning from touching and feeling and and sensing what's going on with people. And you have to allow them to emerge. And you can tell the difference. <laughs> I threw you a curveball there. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Not at all. There's a couple things I want to touch on. I was just taking a few notes. Uh-huh. I love curveballs. Actually, I don't play baseball. But curveballs are kind of fun, right? They move weird. <laughs> so, yeah, curveballs are fine. The phrase, allow them to emerge, allow the patient to emerge. I want, I want to dig into some of this because mm-hmm. I got some questions around that. First, I want to say, in large part, thanks to what I've learned from Nick Pohl with his clean language, I've learned a bit through language and presence to allow my patients to emerge in clinic. And how do I do that? How's that happen? What happens is, instead of me having a good idea for the patient and telling them, I listen for the patients having a good idea what might be good for them and letting that emerge and maybe reflecting it back and leaving it at that. It usually works better. It works way better. No one likes to be told what to do, first of all. Yeah. I still have a rebellious teenager in me. It's like, don't tell me what to do. You know, I go to a yoga class. People on the podcast have heard me say this, but it's so true. I go to a yoga class and someone says, take a nice deep cleansing breath. And my first thought is, shut up. Don't tell me what to do. But I've got that, okay? So I can appreciate not wanting to be told what to do. And I love the process of discovery. How many times have any of us thought we're being helpful by giving our patients some nice, healthy advice that never gets followed? Yeah. Because no one's even looking for it. I mean, that's a very coarse example. But even something as simple as, I think I know what might be good for you and I'm going to try to do something to make that happen, might even be too much as well. So I, I want to come around to this thing. I've talked to a lot of people about this because I'm still really noodling on it. I don't understand it, even though I talk to lots of people about it. Intention. I hear people talk about intention. And I feel like I need to be careful with intention because I do want my patients to get better and I want my work to be helpful, but I worry about laying something on them that's not theirs. Okay. So I'd love to get your take on intention because I feel like I might just be too afferent with it. You know, do my hopes get in the way of them getting better, I think is what I'm saying. Well, the way I look at it, in or the way I practice is my job is to find out where they are. If they're sunk into themselves, then I approach them at a deeper level and meet them there. Or for instance, if their pulse is very fast, then I do a fast technique because it matches their energy. But my intention is not about what should happen. It's where intention comes in is a little bit different, but it's just meeting them where they are. And I don't try and make something happen. I try to touch them with awareness and allow it to go where it goes. The intention comes if someone's energy is very deep, if their pulse is deep in them. I do mostly non-insertive needling. And so I approach 
the needle with the needle thinking about going deep to meet them and it's mostly with intention with my mind rather than actually putting the needle deep into them so i keep going until i feel like i'm in the chi that's the extent of the intention mm -hmm. but it's just meeting them there and then they take it where they go it's about awareness on very deep level of being met so that you're freed up to be who you are and heal yourself but the intention of oh i want this to happen <laughs> is i don't approach people that way yeah yeah thank you i've asked a lot of people about this lately because i'm puzzling through it yeah and yeah. intention to meet them where they are whether that's yes. deep whether that's fast whatever meet them where they are touch the chi that's it yeah that's it that's it it requires also finding out where they are i mean <laughs> you know observing it's like the beginning of my study i was reading these things in the classic that said the superior practitioner looks at the person and knows what's going on and the inferior practitioner has to palpate them and do this and that and make things happen and so i've had to approach it how do you become a superior practitioner is by self-cultivation and by being able to observe observe what is being presented to you and then just meet it where it is not where it needs to go sometimes the finding out what it is 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 realizing that something's not there that should be that they're not expressing something's missing but it's still meeting them where they are mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden it opens i love that i learned years ago hello everyone and cecil sturman here a working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words the power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well integrated diagnostic theoretical and practical skill You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang Qi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. Gosh, so many, you know, so many lessons are just hard won. Yes. <laughs> they are so hard won. And, and I remember at one point coming home from work like every dang night and I was just exhausted. I was just played out. And I began to realize 
that I was putting too much in, into the work with my patients. I didn't know how I was doing it, but just like, man, I can't keep doing this. I'm not sure what it is I'm doing, but I need to stop doing it. So, okay, there's a good conundrum to work on. This is at a very gross level. So I'm just putting this out there so all y'all's listening, maybe you've noticed this too, because what you're talking about is a big refinement. But I found that there were patients who, it was like they were bringing maybe 15% of themselves forward. And I would go to meet them. I would make up the other 85%. And that made me exhausted. Mm. And they never came further forward. In fact, they draw back because they were comfortable having that space where maybe they could only bring themselves out to a certain degree. If I brought myself out more with my attention, my energy, whatever, it never, ever, ever helped. Hmm. But what I found was if they came forward with what I'm going to call 15% and I show up with 20-ish percent, I'm here, I'm present, energetic match, like you were talking about with the pulse, mm -hmm. fast pulse, fast method. I would meet them with that kind of energetic match. I didn't get tired after that. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> and I think my work was better. At this point, I know my work is better. And, and so when I hear you say, meet people where they are, I mean, really meet them. Mm -hmm. Like really meet them. Yeah. Just where they are. Not a couple steps back, not a couple steps where you can meet them where they are. There is something, I was about to say, that really moves the chi, but no, it's not that it moves the chi. Something else happens with the chi, but I don't think I have a word for it. Do you? No. I've struggled with it. I talk about awareness, but it's not, that's not a big enough word. But what I was saying about if their pulse is fast and you do a fast technique, what surprisingly happens is their pulse slows down. And it's not because I tried to make it slow down. Mm -mm. It's just because I touched them where they were. And I don't know. It's probably the old Taoist stories of the person goes to a community where there's a drought mm. and he sits and meditates. And when he's okay, it starts raining. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> kind of thing. He's like, he didn't try and make it rain. He just got in touch with what is there. And because of his own cultivation, it opened the heavens. <laughs> <laughs> now, I can't do that. <laughs> but, I don't know. On my little level of just <laughs> trying to be present with them, it opens something up. It's really quite amazing. I hear you talk about it. We're in the middle of a conversation about it. And I recognize that there are those moments that arise. You just know them. Yeah. They go through you in a way. You're. I mean, I find my entire physiology just kind of softens. My breath goes deeper, I think. I don't know. I haven't paid attention to it. I suspect it does. And like so many things, Zoe, it's simple. Yeah. But that doesn't mean it's easy. Exactly. <laughs> I'm drawn to something that's more simple in a way, theoretically. I don't like lots of techniques and da, 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 you know all sorts of point combinations and I, that I'm not drawn to at all but doing it simply is 
takes a lot of preparation in yourself to be able to touch those places. Well, it's simple in the sense that it's not all these complicated bits and pieces, but being prepared to be there, mm. to be present. How do you prepare yourself for that? Well, some of it is the training in Toyohari is we're coaching each other on what we're doing in the process of needling. And like I said, you can feel the pulse sink because you're putting too much pressure or too much intention on them. And I remember years ago when I started in Toyohari, one of the most wonderful practitioners, Yanagishita Sensei, was in Washington teaching. And I was in a small group and a person was going to needle. I don't remember. It was spleen six or something. I don't remember what point it was, but it was on the leg. And Yanagishita Sensei is blind, was blind. He, mm. he passed away a few years ago. But he was blind, so he couldn't see anything. He was feeling the pulse. And he told the guy, well, you're not on the point. And he kept trying to find it. So he came over and showed him where the point was with his hand. And he said, okay, now you're on it. And go ahead. And he said to him, you're looking at the point too hard. You've made the pulse sink. And so he had him stand up. And it was an amazing experience to watch him do that. Because he, he couldn't see the guy. He couldn't see that he was all bent over on top of the point, but he could feel that that's what he was doing. You're looking at it too hard. Okay. Yeah. I am guilty on multiple accounts <laughs> so much of the time of looking too hard. I get it. I hear you say it. And it's like, yep, I know what that feels like. Yeah. Then the thoughts start to go through my mind like, well, I better do a few extra points here to cover my bases. And it's like, nope, now you're really lost. Yeah. You know, forget it. Like, stop. Like, full stop. Start over. Yeah. I remember something that Chip Chase said. Yes. I had some delightful classes with him. Yes. On uh, engaging vitality. I miss him. Yes. And he would talk to us. We were doing a class on fluids quiet, listen, there's a fluid. It's like, you can look at them. Don't look, don't look directly. Don't look too directly. It's like, you can look out of the corner of your eye. It's okay to look. Don't stare like glimpse. Mm -hmm. Don't look too hard. And you know, there's just some things that, that a teacher will say at a certain moment and it just never leaves me. Mm -hmm. I think about that all the time. Don't look too hard which the meaning I take from that is, Michael Max, you're looking a little hard, like back off a little, relax. That's where you're trying to make something happen with your effort. Yes. Well, you know, someone's paying me to do something. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you a great story about paying you to do something. <laughs> I had a patient, someone brought me this woman because she was so sensitive. She kept reacting to everything she did. And I was her teacher, and she thought maybe I could handle her. So she turned her over to me eventually, and she only wanted one point in the treatment. She drove 45 minutes to get to my office. She wanted one point, and so I, I was okay with it. After a few treatments, I said, I'd like to do a second point. And she said, well, I don't know, I don't know. And then she finally let me do it. 
and she called me from the car when she left and she said, no, I should have told you just that one point that was enough. She knew what she needed mm -hmm. and she came back for the next treatment and she said, listen, I pay you for your restraint. Oh. And that has oh. never left me because, you know, it is really hard to hold yourself back. <laughs> You want to do something else. And in this case, it was just to do an extra point because I thought it would balance things a little more. And she said, I'm paying you for your restraint. And I thought that's really important to realize. Wow. Isn't that great? Yes, it is. And thank you because your voice will follow me into clinic when I'm thinking, oh, how about this one more thing? Yeah. Or if I'm just looking too hard, paying for your restraint. I'm paying you to give me exactly enough. I, I talk to my patients about this all the time. Because being Americans as we is, mm. you know, more is gooder. Like, Doc, yeah. fill me up with needles. Mm. More is gooder. And, and people seem to think that. And we all like a good thing and usually a little bit more of it than's good for us. But that's just the world that we live in. And so... I'm constantly talking to my patients and I remind them, you know, as children, that they either read or probably had read to them the famous classic of enoughness. <laughs> and they look at me like, no, I don't know that Chinese book, the classic <laughs> of enoughness. No, what? What are you talking about? And then I tell them, well, of course you read Goldilocks and the Three Bears, didn't you? And I think about that all the time. That too much is not helpful. Exactly. Not enough is not helpful. Just right is what you're looking for. And what is just right? Well, this is the beauty of the medicine we practice. It's different for everybody and at different times. Exactly. Exactly. And so we're paid for our restraint. Yeah. It's being present to what is happening. When I find myself thinking, well, what can I do now? Then I know it's time to stop because <laughs> if I'm looking for something to do, that is a bad sign. Love it. That's it right there. I love it. Thank you. How do I know I'm done? I'm looking for something else to do. Oh yeah, you're done. I mean, it's a certain kind of looking for something. If it's okay, it's not quite finished. That's a different thing. But yeah, if I'm looking something to do, I'm going past what needs to be done. Over-treatment, I hear the engaging vitality people talk about this all the time. Yeah, we do too. Over-treatment is a real thing, and it happens a lot. In fact, I would say so much, I'm looking at my own experience here, that I've had people come back and either it didn't help or maybe they got worse. It's not because I didn't use enough needles. It's not because I didn't do enough. It's because I did too much. Too much, right. I get a lot of patients that come from other practitioners, and it's clear What's happened is that it's a sensitive person and they've been overtreated and they, they start bouncing around. I mean, their energy is just over stimulated and, and bouncing around where it's just too much for them to integrate. I tell my patients, it's like you have tower of cards and you keep trying to go up higher and higher and you put that last card on and the whole thing falls down. So you want to stop before you get there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. It's always a little heart sinking. This one more needle and you put it in and you go and you check the pulse. It's like, ah, oh, blew the tires much. out. 
Yeah. So I approach it from the underside. I'd rather do be under performing to see what the body can do themselves. Mm. And I tend to get a lot of sensitive patients. And people who are sensitive have a hard time in biomedicine as well. And they go into the doctor and they say, I have this and that and the other thing. Doctor overtreats them and they start having reactions to the medication. But it happens in acupuncture too. Yes. It does. I remember hearing maybe in acupuncture school, certainly as a novice practitioner about how acupuncture is harmonizing and you can't really hurt people with it and you can help, <laughs> but you can't really hurt. And no, actually that's wrong. That's true. From a malpractice standpoint, it's hard to hurt people. I mean, you have to stick needles in bad places and stuff like that. But can you make someone have a bad reaction? Yes, yes. you can. Yeah. And overtreatment is one of the worst ways. You mentioned people bouncing around their energy. is They, they can't integrate it. What are some other signs that you notice with people that are overtreated? And then what do you do about that? Because I guess they're just paying for your restraint then. <laughs> Sometimes it's because people are treating too many things. I'm going to do this and that and the other thing mm. to this person. And when I tell patients about this, sometimes they say, if I tell you to do, if I suggest you do one task, you might do it very well or even two. But if I tell you to do 10 different things, yeah, you're going to have a really hard time with that. And you're not going to know where to focus and how to sort it out. And that or they're overstimulated. Their energies they can't integrate the amount of force you're putting in. And I try not to be putting in force. I try to meet them where they are. And it's a gentle kind of tonification rather than like really stimulating or really dispersing that we don't trust that the system can do it with a easy, but acupuncture is something that you can do very easy touches and it makes a difference. Go back and read Ling Shu One. If you're paying attention and if you know how to use your attention. And these are people often that are very sensitive. I read this wonderful, this very exciting piece in um, Li Hong's book, Classical Chinese Medicine. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful book. I, I really enjoyed it. But I got so excited when he started talking about the heart. And it's in Su Wen 74. And he said, all pain that of sores and itches and sores are relate to the heart. And then he had this interpretation that the heart is in charge of these, where you're feeling things all over little pains and itches and sores, not like a major this or that. Mm -hmm. You're feeling it all over the place. And I went, oh my God, I have all these patients who have all these niggly things that are making them miserable. And, you know, looking from the outside, you go, well, why should you care that you lose a dime's worth of liquid from your <laughs> when you step off a curve. I mean, it's not that big a deal. Or your little finger hurts when you press really hard on something or whatever. But they'll have a whole bunch of those things. And it's usually because they're fairly anxious, but they're so 
their awareness is everywhere. And I went, oh my God, that's the heart. And so I started incorporating it in my treatment protocol that I look at treating the heart, which is not so commonly done in Japanese acupuncture. But when I recognized what that was in people, I thought, this is fantastic. I mean, I had never seen that as a heart symptom. So he opened that door. Now, the opposite is true, too. There are people that are so unaware of everything, and they don't even notice the things that are going on, which is also the heart, because it's the opposite. Not getting the signals from all over their body that are telling them what's happening. But I have a whole bunch of patients over the years that have been these people who are paying too much attention to too many things. I mean, I'm not trying to treat all those things. I'm trying to find the pattern that's behind it. But I had never seen that as being the heart. And now you do. Now I do. And it, and it helps. It helps. It helps tremendously. It's, it's wonderful. It's like you keep learning. Yes. Someone says something, that one little bit in that book, I mean, there are other things that are great in the book, but I just got so excited about it because I thought, these are people I'm puzzling with all the time. Yes. And those are the people that get over-treated when they go to places where people are trying to plug all those holes. And so they get 26 needles and now the body doesn't know what to do. Yeah, you've actually exacerbated their awareness of all of those things. Mm -hmm. And they're, those are the kinds of people that very often get over-treated, both by Western medicine and by acupuncture, because people are trying to address all of the problems. And the real problem is that they may be anxious, but they're over-focused on I was talking to a psychiatrist patient, and I was describing this, and he said they're hypochondriacal. And, and I thought, well, that's the way to say it, but I wouldn't say that. But it's also a kind of, I don't know, just focused on things that don't need to be focused on. Yes, we all have that patient after we've done the intake, and then you say, well, is there anything else? Well, I got this little thing here on my finger. and then And then sometimes... When I'm eating, there'll be this little sound that comes out of my left ear. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You go. Yeah. So bringing that back to the heart and over extension of awareness into places where it doesn't really serve the person. Now, if you go putting a bunch of needles in, now what you've done is given the body even more things to think about and wonder about and worry about and attend to. Maybe with someone like that, something really simple, like one thing. Well, also looking at the pattern in meridian therapy where you're treating five phases, it often would include the spleen with the heart. And the spleen has a function also as Lily Hung brought out of sorting out what is important to focus on and what isn't. Right. And so that the two of those together is really healing for these people rather than chasing their symptoms everywhere or getting so frustrated because they have too many things going on. 
their shen is scattered and their e can't focus. Yeah, it can't sort out what's really crucial mm. and what's not. That hangnail is not the most crucial thing in your life, but the fact that you're aggravated by it, that you're really disturbed by it, is important. And uh, but those people, those are people that I see that do get overtreated in any kind of medicine. Yes. Well, I would think with your particular perspective, your sensitivities that you've cultivated over time, the awarenesses that it brings you in the clinic that you are very respectful of your patients. You want to meet them where they are. You don't want to lay your concepts on them. You don't want to ask them to be anything other than who they are. Yes, I would suspect that sensitive people would search you out. You would be trustworthy. Yeah. That where other practitioners, even with the best of intentions, maybe wouldn't be so helpful. Yeah, well, I'm sure I have that possibility as well. <laughs> there are people that you miss that you don't quite get what's going on. Well, there's there's that. I mean, we all have that. But, uh, yeah, it, it's that thing. And you hear, you know, anyone who's been in practice for any length of time knows that there are certain kinds of people that come to them and there's certain kinds of people that they kind of get them. They can work with them. And there's other kinds of people. It's just, it's not a great fit. Yeah. I used to think I could treat anybody for anything. Chinese medicine, awesome. <laughs> we can use this to treat anybody. We can treat anything. I can't wait. I found out that there are some things I just really can't treat. And there's some kinds of people, I'm just not good with them. For whatever reason, Yeah. not my tribe. There's other people that I know are much better in, in helping them. Yeah, no. Recognizing that is really important, too. And I was talking to someone a couple of weeks ago about case histories, and she was saying how we really need more case histories in our medicine. And I think it's true. I mean, my own case histories from my own practice as well as from others is where you haven't solved the problem and you have to work through it mm -hmm. somehow. You have to find what you're not getting, and that's you know, really a learning is admitting that you missed it. And how do I step back and rethink it if you can, or send them on to someone else, as you were just saying? That would be a great topic, if we dare, for a podcast conversation. Great failures I have not yet figured out. <laughs> because I remember going to school, and in the very first week, what I heard from my teachers were stories of how they thought a treatment was going well, but it didn't. Ooh, very unexpected, adverse reactions. I tried this, I tried that, it went like this, da da da. You know, in the end, there's salvation. But yeah, what about those cases where we haven't worked it all the way through? It's like great failures I haven't figured out yet. There's a lot in there. That one's harder. That one's harder. It is harder. But I I was in a, a book that was published, I don't remember how many years ago, Acupuncture in Practice. Yes, that's a great book. Yeah, that I was asked to do a chapter in that book. They specifically said you have to do a case that you had a problem and you had to solve it. And they said, I was, Ted Kapchuk is a good friend of mine, was 
one of the co-editors of it, and he said they had the hardest time getting people to put up cases that they hadn't solved. Not that they hadn't ever solved, but that they hadn't solved and had to work through admitting failure. And unfortunately, that's how we learn. <laughs> we can also learn from the things that go well. It is possible to learn that way. Yeah. But there's something about working through those places where we don't know yet. And you go through that kind of liminal space of, I don't even know where I where to stand. I have to start again, or my thinking might be totally off. Mm -hmm. And for me, the real challenge is, God, I thought I'm supposed to know this stuff by now. <laughs> I mean, this is a, a double-edged sword, and both of them are okay. I, yeah, I would say at this point, both those edges of the sword are okay. It's great to be able to like get it and know it. I think in, increasingly I am more comfortable with, I don't know what we're looking at. In fact, I had an interview today with a, a patient. I haven't seen this person in ages. He lives in another town. His son is having some issues. And so we had a a little video chat. And man, what a story. I'm not going to go into it other than to say, wow. No wonder everybody's confused about what's going on with this kid. And no wonder he's having a rough go because it's a really difficult case. And they've seen all kinds of doctors. I mean, we've all had these kind of patients, right? Mm -hmm. But they were asking me, like, what do you do with this? <laughs> Have you got some ideas, Michael Max? <laughs> I said, well, in a case like this, sometimes I have ideas, sometimes I don't, but here's what I know. When it's complicated like this, it takes some time. And the way that I begin is I look at what I think I might know. I look at what I know for sure I don't know. And then I look at the weird contradictions and just hang out with them and see what comes up over time. And if you're okay with working that way, I'm happy to work with you. And I think there's something about being able to say, I'm not sure, in an honest way, that often will bring a huge amount of trust from your patients because they've already seen 15 other doctors who said they knew, but they didn't. Well, it's always a good sign that a sign, I don't mean good in, in beneficial, a sign that they've seen so many people and they haven't solved the problem that this is not an easy problem. Mm -hmm. That someone would have gotten to the bottom of it. And so it's telling you already that it's hard. One of my things is that I've gotten over the years is when it's really complex, I have to go even simpler. Mm-hmm that I have to try and find some central core in the midst of all that complexity to address. And, and then you see what happens or doesn't. But if you treat a bunch of different things, it gets... So I always I say to people, when it's really complex, I go really simple. Because uh -huh. then I can start to sort out what reactions are happening. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. 
In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jing well points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. All right, so in the Chinese medicine world, we can call that Zoe's razor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I really, it's the first thing that comes to my mind. Okay, what's the simplest place I can go here? And then see what, how to respond. But also I get very, because I do so much palpation now <laughs> in the world of COVID, <laughs> when I couldn't. I get confused if I can't touch someone. Mm -hmm. I get so much information from touching that it's hard for me to orient myself without having some sense of touching. So that capacity that you have for sensing mm -hmm. is fundamental to how you work. Yeah, yeah, it is now. I had a patient the other day. I saw her the first time a couple, a week or so ago, and she had back pain, and she was really miserable. And there were so many confusing things about what she was saying, and it was happening this way and that way and so on. And I was lost, and I found what I wanted to treat. And she came back, and when I was palpating her back, I thought, this is not in the tissue. And she had gone to, one doctor said she had a herniated disc, and another doctor said she had a trapped nerve in her pelvis, and they were coming, and nobody was helping her for six months. And I was trying to get a sense of what was going on, and when I touched her, I went, this is not in the physical tissue. I could just not feel it there. I mean, it was a little bit off, but it, the tissue was not so much a problem, and I thought, okay, there's something emotional going on. And she did not go there at all when I interviewed her and in the beginning or even the second treatment. And I treated her on Heartmaster, on pericardium. One point, along with the other points, I was doing some other things. And she got up, she sat up, and she said, could this have to do with depression? And she started crying. And she was she went through so many Kleenex. And then she was talking about her parents dying one after another in the same year. And it was, was amazing. I didn't say a word to her about the emotional, but 
just touching that, just doing pericardium seven on her as part of the treatment, it gave her permission to let the, all that out. And she said, but you're going to tell me this is all in my mind. And I said, no, it's obviously not. You're having body pain. That's why she didn't mention it to me. She didn't want me to dismiss her as it being emotional. But as soon as I touched her there and gave her permission to enter that space, she just There went. it was, yes. <laughs> so I've had more than one person talk about acupuncture as a conversation. And this is one of the reasons why I really love this work. Yeah. Because like this patient of yours, she could go to a psychotherapist and maybe do, you know, some talking work, whatever, mm -hmm. or come to see you. You're having a conversation with what you sense and, and the needles that you put in. You're asking a question. Mm -hmm. hey, might be something here emotionally. I realize as we're having this conversation, I usually put a needle in because I think it's an answer. But now I'm wondering what would happen if I work in such a way that I put in a needle and have the needle be a question yeah. instead of an answer. It sounds like you put in a needle into pericardium seven is kind of a question. Could there be some emotional thing that could use some help? Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> the, answer was the answer was absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and let me tell you all about it. Yeah, have you got another Kleenex, please? And I love that about the capacity of acupuncture and the capacity that we have to be with people where you don't have to, I'm using air quotes here, go there. We just are there with them. And it, it, this winds right back to the beginning of our conversation mm -hmm. about your perspective is to meet them just where they are. And in that case, she didn't tell me that. She didn't need to. But I could feel it being missing right. because it wasn't in the tissue. So I knew it was missing. And so I met her where the missing piece was. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Yeah. It's so exciting. I love doing this work. That's why I've been doing it for so long. <laughs> I had plenty of different jobs and a couple careers before I came to Chinese medicine. I've never stuck at something unless it's been able to keep my attention. And yeah, I've got at least a lifetime or two that I could play with this stuff. Never boring. Always interesting. That's why, like I said, when I made the decision to study acupuncture years ago, I never would have thought that I was the kind of person that would stick with something like that. And here I am all these years later. Yeah. And quite a journey. So something I do want to come back to, there's a couple things here. I know we've been at this a little bit and I'm just going to ask for a little bit more of your time. You were talking about early on, you were doing this classic study with, with Elizabeth and Father Lar. You're studying classics. You weren't really studying technique. You weren't studying therapeutics. You were studying ancient, classical, philosophical, medical, ancient science and philosophy. How did that imbue your work at that time? By opening me up to observing Chinese cosmology is about observing the universe. And it teaches you how to see those things in the universe and how they are in us. And I know people 
used to say, well, it's not very practical. And I thought, God, it changes my practice. It does. I could see it was changing my practice, what I observed and so on. But then, you know, I mean, I mentioned Ling Shu One, which this last year I've read through twice. And I don't know if you ever read Chip article with uh, Dan Bensky, actually, it's two parts that was in The Lantern. Uh, did you read that? I've read it several times, and it's one of those things it's worth coming back to from time to time. Yeah, well, like I said, I've, I've read it twice in, the, in Chinese in the last year, once with Sabina Vilms and the other with Elizabeth Rocha. Oh, you're reading it in Chinese with Sabina? Yes. You have drunk in the Kool-Aid. <laughs> but it's about needle technique in an extremely amazing way, being able to go into the stillness and the openness to touch the place that everything triggers off of. G is the word for trigger, but it also means a place where something shoots from, and it's in the middle of an empty space where that is. And that's what you're trying to touch with the needle. The middle of the empty space. So talk about technique. <laughs> it's there in the Ling Shu. <laughs> well, Ling Shu is about the point, yeah. about the axis of the spirit, of the efficacy of the spirit. So it is in those texts, <laughs> but you have to look for it and not just skim over it. You do have to look. <laughs> And I think there's something, if you know a modicum of Chinese, you don't need to know a lot of Chinese to read Chinese medicine. It's a fairly limited vocabulary. Sometimes the Chinese and seeing it in Chinese and thinking about it in Chinese and, and entering it through that doorway, so to speak, you'll see other things. Yes, exactly. It's very rich. It's very rich. And it has informed me for all these years in so many ways. Now I'm starting to study Taoism from a practice standpoint, so that's different than from a scholarly standpoint. And we'll see where that takes me. <laughs> Practical Taoism. Well, from a practice. So what does that look like? Well, learning Taoist practices like chanting and, and talismans and things like that. When the nature of healing, I don't even know. I'm just at the beginning of it. <laughs> but it's another nook and cranny of <laughs> my journey. It's not, yeah. They're not nooks and crannies. They're big highways. They are big highways. They're like rivers. And I think I've gotten hooked into the stems and branches here recently. Uh -huh. Not at all that I understand it, but that I might be able to understand it. I feel at this point like I might be able to understand it if I work at it. Yeah. I might be able to understand. I have this sense that it's like, oh, this is like the source code of our medicine. If I can understand the source code, maybe that'll give me another way of working with points and people and perception and right. everything else. I don't know. I'm just at that very beginning place, and I feel like there might be something here. Yeah. I find things like that, little avenues that I know if I can really feel what that's about, that it might give me 
a big opening to some other understandings, like the quote from Leo Li Hong. Yes. That was, I need to go read the book again. <laughs> yeah, if there are other things in there that spur me off like that did. It's quite likely that had you read that 10 years prior, you would have never seen it. Maybe. I know I was in a, a discussion group on that book, and I talked about what it meant to me, and a couple of people responded that they saw that too. And other people had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> That's why having discussion groups and friends and people to bounce it off of is so helpful. Yeah. And I think we need to be ready in a certain way. We need a certain amount of experience. We need a certain amount of perspective so that you can catch it in the way that you caught it. And thank you for sharing it and passing it on to me and the listeners, because I know what you're talking about. I've seen that in clinic. Yeah. And on both sides of it, like you say, opposites are also true. I've seen it in the case where too much attention. I've seen it in the case of not enough. Like, okay. I know what that feel. I actually know what that feels like. There's a feeling I get, at least from the excess type. I usually get annoyed. It's like, oh God, you're you're really going to go there with that? Like, we've already got <laughs> enough to work with. I know. But now, when that comes up, I'm like, oh, that's a symptom of. Oh, now I see what might be going on. Okay, great. Now I know what to do. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. There was something you just said that just, I was going to say, the other thing from perspective of so many years is that I realize that people find the tools that work with them, mm. work for them, like stems and branches might work for you or it might not work for you. I don't know. I'm going to find out. Right. You have to check it and see, but people find the ways of thinking or the tools that work for them. And it may work for them, but not for someone else. And you have to see. Yeah. So often these days, you know, again, I, I love this conversation with you because it's so exciting to be like way past midlife and be so enthused about what we do. Mm -hmm. That's cool. That's a blessing. Mm -hmm. Lucky us. And for the longest time, I always thought it was so much about like what I did. And increasingly, it's more about how I am or how I do. It's not about the what as much as it is about the how. I've been exploring that a bit lately. Just, mm -hmm. it's, it's just a little mind shift. Like mm -hmm. not what I do in clinic, how I am in clinic. It just brings a, a slightly different tool in a sense, tool of attention. Well, what, what I said is in the beginning that I was studying the Taoist writings as cultivation, just observing it, and I'm back to that again. Mm. And it's about how you are and your presence making a difference. I mean, you, you use this tool or that tool or this theory or that theory, but it's about how you bring yourself into that and how you've embodied that. Like your example of the stems and branches is I couldn't use it unless I embodied it somehow. I do not have it anywhere close to embodied. Yeah. Let me just put that out right now. It's nowhere close to embodied. It's this 
bit of curiosity that keeps it keeps fluttering in my attention. It's like I'm still here. I'm still here. I know yeah. what you're talking about, yeah. and it. I actually took those those lectures from Deborah. That's where you saw me mm-hmm. recently, because I was curious. But at the moment, I don't have enough excitement about it to go further. But I might at some point. You got your Dallas thing going right now. Yeah, right. But I was curious. I wanted to see what it was and if it really grabbed me or not. And it didn't grab me enough (laughs) at this point. I mean, this is the wonderful thing about practicing the medicine that we practice. There's plenty of different ways that we can bring ourselves to it and plenty of different methods that we can get playful with. Yes. There's something else I wanted to touch on here in this this does connect in with the, the how we are. This is prior to us sitting down for a conversation today. I understand that in the past you've done some research with having yourself hooked up to some kind of neural feedback and having your patients hooked up to some neural feedback and looking at what's happening in between patient and practitioner. I mean, we've been actually we've been talking for the past hour about connecting with people. But this is another way of looking at other things that are going on mm-hmm. with how people are connected. And I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Well, the idea, I was working with this psychologist who used neurofeedback and was basically retraining brainwave functions. And I was really curious about it. And I talked to him about the possibility of looking at what happened to me while I was treating someone and looking at what happened to them in their brain waves. And we had several patients that we shared that he knew. I did five people in this little study, and I think two of them he had treated me. I can't remember if it was two or three. It was a number of years ago. And so he did a general point. It was actually GV20. So you could read the whole brain and some other little points to to anchor it. And I did a root treatment in Toyohari, very basic one of five points. And it turned out that of the five people, four of them, I did the same points, even though they're different people with different problems and so on. So that gave an interesting perspective as well. It just turned out that's what they showed up with, or that's I hadn't sorted that out ahead of time that that, that was going to be the case. But one of the things he noticed was I wanted to see if there was some resonance between my brain waves and theirs. I, I had no idea if there was. It didn't show up that way. But what he noticed was with each person, my brain waves were different. Oh, wow. So I was relating to them differently with my brain waves in me as I treated them. So I was different with each person. And not so much from how I was talking to them specifically. It was my brain waves were different. The other thing was that, as I said, four of them, it ended up being the same points. Um, one of them was a little bit different, but each one of them had different reactions to those same points. And one of the people was someone who had MS, and he had treated her 
before with neurofeedback or he worked with her with neurofeedback. And he said, you see, in her, those points lit up things that had to do with motor points in the brain. That's what she needed. Not that I was focusing on doing anything to her motor points, but what she needed, she got from the general root treatment that I did in those places. And he pointed that out in the other people too, that they all had different reactions because what they needed got fulfilled by the same point. So general treatment, I don't mean general, just not paying attention to the patient, but treating people on their root imbalance allowed them to get what healing they personally needed. It wasn't about the points. No. And it's, isn't that credible? Well, again, I'm back to what we were talking about earlier. You meet them where they are. Yes. You needle to that trigger in the midst of emptiness and stillness. <laughs> and then the patient decides what they're going to do with that. Right. And that your brain was different with each patient. That, I wasn't expecting to hear that. I was expecting to hear, oh yeah, look, they come into this coherence and this balance with each other. But no, your brain was different with each person because your attention, because how you're attending, what you're attending to, is there energy out? Is there energy in? You need to be different to connect with them. That makes total sense, given what we've talked about today. And I wasn't aware that I was being different with them. It wasn't obvious to me, but he was amazed. And uh, he said he never had acupuncture and he didn't ask me to treat him either, but he had never had it. He said, this stuff really does something. Look what it's done to these people's brainwaves. <laughs> <laughs> well, how about that? <laughs> he was so floored. He said, my goodness, you got so much change and the ways they needed it. He didn't realize I was doing the same points on everyone. He, he, he wouldn't focus on that. He was just trying to get the readings on two people at one time. <laughs> well, that's great. He's he's focused on his piece of it. So that's really helpful for any kind of a study. Yeah. You know, if he's looking at the points and coming up with an idea about what those points might mean, maybe he's influencing the, the results that way. But no, no, he's just looking at brainwaves. No, he was just trying to make sure and that the leads weren't, because I was moving around with leads off my head. <laughs> Oh, man, that's great. Thank you. It's always extraordinary to, yeah. It was very interesting. But it wasn't done in a in a way that could be published. Someone said you could publish it as a letter in a research journal, but you can't publish it because there's no placebo and there's too few people and so on. But it was interesting. I was trying to get someone to help me figure out how to pursue it, and I dropped it. So it's, it's a number of years ago, but it, it was an interesting idea. No, it's an interesting idea. You've done a fascinating pilot. Maybe some doctoral student listening to this will think, hey, yeah, we could dig into this. So who knows? You might hear from somebody. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, Zoe, this has been an absolute delight today. Yeah. To uh, spend a little time with you and and I thank you so much for your uh, your perspective and and unbridled enthusiasm for the work after 46 years. Contagious enthusiasm for the work. Oh, well, thank you. I love the way you do your interviews. You do that with the interview, like I was saying, bring out the patient in your treatment, and you're very good at doing it in the interview. Do you know how I learned to talk like this? How? By being an acupuncturist and being with patients. This is just how I am with patients. Uh-huh. I'm like this, except I have needles. <laughs> <laughs> No microphones, <laughs> just needles. <laughs> it's like what you do, right? I think it's what many of us do. We're following, we are inquisitively with kind of an open heart and a sense of being unfettered, following something to see what's here. Mm -hmm. So here's, here's what happened. Here's how I learned to talk this way and be this way with people. I'm not great with differential diagnosis. I'm not great at it. So... All those great patterns that we learned and things that, that you're supposed to know and the patient walks in the room and the doctor knows what's wrong with them. I had that image. I'm supposed to be that guy, right? The superior doctor. Person walks in, you know what you're going to do. And man, it's rough because <laughs> not only did I not have that capability, but people walk in and they talk to me and I talk to them and I go through the 10 questions and I go through some more questions and, you know, I should know what the damn pattern is by now so I can treat them. But I didn't know. I didn't know what to do. And what I learned to do over time, again, because I'm not great with differential diagnosis, I had to hang out with the patient in some way and engage them in different parts of them in some way that at some point they would tell me what they needed. Yes. And they would tell me what they needed. And I go, oh, I get it. In the same way that the patient who didn't tell you about her emotions, mm -hmm. you palpated her back and you went, not in the tissues. Sometimes people will say something to me and I'll go, oh. Yes, exactly. There it is. And then in time, I've also been practicing more with my hands so that I can put my hands on people and, and it's like, okay, they just told me something that makes no sense given what I'm feeling on their, on their belly. Or sometimes I'll just feel their belly and go, oh yeah, I see there's a liver issue. Yeah. And it's taken me a lot of time of listening attentively until I, it's like the penny drops. It's like, you know, it. something comes through and it's like that start here. I have to say that I didn't say this in the beginning. When I started practicing acupuncture, I had so little training. I had so little training, much less than you did, I'm sure. Mm. I had to learn from my patients, mm -hmm. just like saying. And when I got around to studying other more sort of classical TCM kind of acupuncture, when I started, I said, yeah, I figured that out from watching what happened with patients. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. It really is true because I figured it out. It really is true. But it's because I, I was desperate to figure out what to do with people. And I had so little training. It was amazing <laughs> how I even ended up there. One step at a time, probably. 
But just like you, I had to really pay attention and hang out and try and figure out what was going on. I had some desire to do something with the needles that were in my hand. <laughs> yeah. So that's how we got here. <laughs> that's how we got here. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for this delightful time together today. Yes. Thank you. I loved Zoe's story of Father Claude Lar, who went deep into translating classic aspects of Chinese medicine because, as he basically said, if you're odd, then double down on that. As a younger person, that is the last thing I wanted to do. Good Lord, if I could only iron out my weirdness, then maybe I'd have an easier ride through life. But doubling down on the thing that makes you odd, it is also the thing that enlivens your curiosity and keeps tugging at your attention. I suspect that thing that makes us strange, that's the X on your own personal treasure map. The other thing Zoe mentioned that seems like a worthwhile practice to cultivate was how she's come to the practice of meeting her patients, engaging without forcing anything on them, meeting at the interface of where they are and what they might yet become. You know, I think it's not that our work fixes people, but rather it frees them. Well, friends, that is probably a pretty good place to put a bookmark in it for today. I hope that you have found our time together to be helpful and interesting and worth the time that you spent with us today. We will be back again next Tuesday. Be sure to tune into your podcast app for another excitingly geological conversation on medicine. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm -hmm.